now then, look at uh, verse 15 of this 21st chapter of John. You're going to see the reinstatement of Peter uh, as an apostle in the fullest sense of the word. You remember that Peter had thrice denied his Lord and with bitter oaths and curses had done so. And uh, see how Jesus treats a backslider. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. And we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. In introducing our theme this morning, I want to go back to something that I used just a few weeks ago. Uh, many of you know about C.S. Lewis. He died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was shot, uh, November 22, 1963. And uh, two years later, T.S. Eliot died in 1965. Uh, Eliot was a great Christian poet. C.S. Uh, Lewis was a great Christian writer. In fact, instead of diminishing, uh, C.S. Lewis has grown and grown and grown uh, in people who admire his remarkable works. Now, his works, which I understand best, are his children's books. <laughs> and uh, they're written for nine-year-olds. And uh, uh, they're written in short sentences and uh, with very interesting chapters, and I highly recommend them to you. Earl Palmer, who is one of the leaders of the American uh, C.S. Eliot movement, uh, uh, 
C.S. Eliot, uh, C.S. Lewis movement uh, has uh, a college called New College out in Berkeley, California, and in his church they do four-hour studies of each one of these Narnia books showing the Christian truths that come from it. Now, you will understand, those of you who have been attending our church, that uh, Lewis is writing about the wartime situation in Great Britain during World War II and how children were evacuated from the city of London and were taken out into the countryside and these little children lived in an old uh, weird professor's house and they walked into a wardrobe which led them into the land of Narnia and uh, this was a strange land where many symbols are given and where Lewis teaches many Christian truths and in the book which I think is my favorite of the, of the children's book, The Silver Chair, is about a young prince who is chained to a silver chair. And in this book, uh, we are told how uh, you, you can see the Christian truths that come through. First of all, in the opening part of this, behind the gym, there's a story of how a little girl uh, whose name is Jill is a real show-off. And she is playing one day in the schoolyard and some hoodlums come and chase uh, Jill and her friend, whose name is Eustace Scrub, uh, out of the schoolyard and they run to hide behind a bush and they wind up uh, mysteriously in the land of Narnia, which Scrub knows about and has tried to tell Jill about and Jill hasn't been willing to believe. They get close to a cliff and Jill, who is unafraid of heights, starts showing off from rock to rock, jumping from rock to rock. And poor old Eustace Scrub, who is scared of going close to these, like I was the first time I went up suicide, uh, he doesn't want to go over there. And she taunts him a little bit and teases him. And so he goes over and tries to be macho and gets on the rocks and falls. And just when he falls, there's a whoosh, a big breath that comes from in back of uh, them. Uh, but all she sees is poor Eustace screaming and falling down in space. Uh, but in back of her, when she turns around, she looks and she sees a lion. And that lion is Aslan. And Aslan, of course, is the Christ figure. And let me pick this up because Lewis can tell it better than I can. Without a glance at Jill, the lion rose to its feet and gave one last blow. Then, as if satisfied with its work, it turned and stalked slowly away. It must be a dream. It must, said Jill. I'll wake up in a moment. But it wasn't, and she didn't. I do wish we'd never come to this dreadful place, said Jill. I don't believe Scrub knew any more about it than I do, or if he did, he had no business to bring me here without warning me what it was like. It's not my fault he fell over that cliff. If he had left me alone, we'd both be all right. And then she remembered again the scream that Scrub had given when he fell, and she burst into tears. Now, you listen. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. That's a great one-liner. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. Now, 
you can apply this to almost any emotion. Anger can, under circum certain circumstances, be all right for a while. But sooner or later, you have to stop and decide what to do. Grief. When someone has a death in the family, someone came to talk with me yesterday about death. How do you stop a grief reaction? Well, you don't go to someone and say, stop grieving. Uh, but grieving is all right in its way while it lasts. But after a while, you have to stop and decide what to do. And even if you're a workaholic and you work hard all the time and never stop, that's all right for a while, but sooner or later you'll have to stop and decide what to do. Well, when Jill stopped, she found that she was dreadfully thirsty. She had been lying face downward, and now she sat up. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence except for one small persistent sound which seemed to come a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that the lion might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might even be several lions. But her thirst was so bad by now that she plucked up her courage to go and look for the running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree and stopping to peer around at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from, it and it grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade, and she saw the stream as bright as glass running across the turf, a stone's throw away. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, and this is the way it is when you come to Christ, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. If you've ever been to London, one of the sights that they take you to see is the Nelson Monument, at Trafalgar Square because he won the Battle of Trafalgar. And there are two huge lions there. And Earl Palmer said that he once counted six children on the back of one of those big stone lions. And that's what uh, he draws attention to here because re remember Christ is the lion. She knew at once that the lion had seen her for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away. Did you ever see that Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer lion? It looks at you like that and turns away. <laughs> well, the lion turned away. It knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I'll run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried and she couldn't take her eyes off the lion. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she wouldn't mind being eaten by the lion if she could only be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard spoken since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. And then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, 
Come and drink. Of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Now listen. Are you thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. <laughs> now that's the way people want to come to Jesus. They know, he, they know he's going to change their life. And they want to drink from the living water which he is able to give. But they want him to go away first. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at this motionless bull, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly mad. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. Now here's what Jesus Christ would say. I make no promise said the lion. Jill was so thirsty by now that without noticing it, she'd gotten a step nearer. That's the way it is when we come to Christ. Do you eat little girls? <laughs> she said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. That's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he did not say it as if he were boasting. He did not say it as if he were sorry. He did not say it uh, as if he were angry. He just said it. And that's the truth. And that's why we have missionaries. And that's why we preach uh, salvation through Christ and Christ alone. Now listen to Jill's, re uh, Jill's reply. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. Boy, this guy's got the gospel. It, it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream and knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. And you didn't need much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished taking a drink. Now she realized that this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here, said the lion. And she had to. She was almost between its front paws now, looking straight into its face, but she could not stand that for long. She dropped her eyes. Human child, said the lion, where is the boy? He fell over the cliff, said Jill, and added, sir. She didn't know what to call him, and it sounded cheeky, to call him nothing. 
How did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That's a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. Now then, I'll let you read the rest of it, and I'll take a drink of water. Because this is teaching you what is going to happen to Peter. He had gone out into the darkness weeping bitterly because three times he had denied his Lord with bitter oaths and curses. He'd gone out into the darkness, and I think we would have had another Judas on our hands if it had not been for someone maybe like John who must have followed him. Anyway, Peter was depressed, Peter was defeated, Peter was miserable. As T.S. Eliot had written about the month of April, it was for him the cruelest month. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilies out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. You see, the promise of the new life in Christ, and he had failed. Mixing memory and desire had caused him to bitterly weep because he had boasted that though everybody else might betray Jesus, not Peter, he said, you may count on me. I don't know what Matthew's going to do. That guy was a tax gatherer anyway. I don't know what Thomas will do. Nobody knows what Thomas will do. I don't know what Andrew's going to do. He's my own brother. But I'll tell you one thing. Everybody else may fail you, but not Pete. Not old Rocky. I'll be with you right to the end, all the way. And then he miserably failed. If he had been a preacher, he would not have gotten another church. If he had been a revivalist or an evangelist, no one would have ever gone to hear him preach again. You wouldn't like a person like that. But how does Jesus treat this man? That's what we have to see here. Did you see how Lewis brought that out subtly? First of all, there comes uh, a dealing with this. Jesus said uh, Peter uh, had gathered his friends together because he was depressed. He did a very sensible thing. They went fishing. If you go to a good shrink and you're depressed and you're not sick enough to be in a hospital, he'll tell you to go fishing or to do something that you like to do especially. That's just good therapy. Everything becomes therapy when you're depressed. Well, Peter was depressed at his own failure. And uh, so he called six of his associates. He just announced to them, I'm going fishing. And so they said, well, we'll go with you. And so they went with him. And then they fished all night long. And that's symbolic. That night, that darkness. Now, there's something that really happened, but the darkness is there. And they did not catch a thing. And the next morning, after a sleepless night of not catching anything, they see someone way off in the distance on the shore. And the King James Version is just terrible at this point. It says, children, have you any meat? That's not uh, translatable very well into English. Uh, the technon is child, but it's uh, sort of like the IE that we put on kitties or uh, laddies or something like that. It's a, a diminutive, a small, affectionate term. Those of us from Texas would have said boys. And I think that's what he said. He said, you caught anything, boys? 
And when you ask a fisherman who's tried all night and hasn't caught anything, you get a short answer. No. <laughs> that's, what, that's what they said. No. And then he said, throw the net on the right side of the ship and you'll catch some. And they threw the net on the right side of the ship and then they felt, have you ever felt a big fish on the end of a line? Uh, uh, line? Let me tell you, that's the best shock therapy you'll ever get a hold of. When you get a big bass on the end of a fishing rod and you're fishing and you throw a plug out there and then suddenly there's an explosion and that rod bends, your heart jumps about three beats and you think, oh no, I hope he doesn't get away. And, well, you can imagine what they felt like after all night throwing that net time and time again and not catching a thing, and then suddenly here it is full of life and fish, and they're big fish, and they're making a fuss. Well, John, who was younger than Peter and had better eyes and could outrun him, he looked, and he said, it's the Lord, and that's all he needed to say. And Peter put everything together real quick. He remembered the first time that Jesus had seen them when they had been trying to fish and hadn't caught anything. And the flashback caught him instantly. And Peter girded his fisher's coat about him because he was stripped to the waist. And he dived into the water and he swam for shore. I think out of just sheer impetuous and impulsive delight to know that his Lord was alive. And then uh, when they got near the shore, he was such a big burly fellow that he went over and drew that net, which was full, and uh, 153 fish. Uh, that's an interesting thing. They counted the fish, 153 big ones. You know why they counted them? Well, there were these seven who had gone there, counting Peter. They were going to divide those fish up later, and they counted up their catch. And they were startled at the number of them and the size of them. And then Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And so they brought some of the fish they had just caught, and Jesus had a fire of coals burning and fish laid on it, and he had some bread. How do you treat a backslider? Well, first of all, Jesus fed him. This is the first prayer breakfast right here. Jesus fed them. He gave them something to eat. It's hard to hassle someone after you've had a good meal. And Jesus fed Peter first. And then this business of speaking to him about loving him. When they had finished eating, Jesus didn't bring it up right away. And notice he didn't bring it up in detail. Just as Aslan the lion in what I read you in the account of Jill and Eustace, Aslan didn't say, you pushed that boy off the cliff, or you made him do that. And Jesus didn't start off with Peter by saying, you denied me three times, didn't you? And you violated the third commandment, you took the name of the Lord your God in vain, didn't you? No, Jesus didn't jump him that way. When they had finished eating, Jesus asked him a question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Remember what Aslan the lion said to Jill? Human child, what happened to the boy? 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then a second time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then a third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now Peter is hurt. He's hurt because it's the third time that Jesus has asked the question, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know. You know me. And you know that I love you. Now, there are a great many preachers who make a play on the uh, words uh, in Greek for love here. Agape is the love like God so loved the world. It's that love which does not want anything in return, but is given from God. That's the amazing uh, love. How can it be? That's agape love. Phileo is a friendly, affectionate sort of word, but there's no need to make a big play on the Greek here because they were speaking Aramaic. <laughs> and uh, you can get in trouble if you're not careful uh, exegeting this. And now there may have been something in the tone of the voice of Jesus that implied what they're trying to uh, translate into the Greek. Uh, but Jesus is dealing with this backslider by feeding him. You remember when the prodigal son went back in Luke 15? The father ran out to meet him, and he killed the fatted calf, and he had a feast, and he fed him. And you remember he hugged him before that boy ever got the speech out that he had been practicing all the way back home. Well, that's what Jesus teaches. You remember when Elijah was depressed, and he ran and ran and ran to get away from Jezebel, and he got to a juniper tree, and he fell down, and he said, Oh, I'm so... I'm the only preacher in the world that believes the gospel. I just want to die. I'm fed up with these crazy people I've been trying to preach to. They won't listen to me anymore. They won't listen to anybody. I'm the only one that really believes anything. I want to die. And the Lord sent a very human angel. It said, here's something to eat, Elijah. Eat it and sleep. Sometimes that's pretty good spiritual therapy. Sometimes you need to eat and sleep more than you need a speech. And then after he had eaten and after he had rested, then is when the earthquake and the wind and the fire came to teach him a lesson and the still small voice of God. Well, Peter is reinstated because he is fed. Now the forgiveness miracle takes place and this is a great miracle. This is a great miracle because he is allowed to recall by this question, do you love me? Do you love me more than these other people here love me? Do you love me more than you love these nets and, and boats? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he gives him a job to do, feed my lambs. Then Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he gives him a job to do. Tend my sheep. Take care of my sheep. He keeps asking him these questions because he is not only going to forgive him, but he is going to reinstate him. And uh, when he reinstates him, 
And Peter has made that famous line of his, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then Jesus tells him what the future holds. He has fed him. He has forgiven him. And now he tells the future. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. That meant that one day the jailer would come in and get Peter and put his coat on him and lead him out and nail him to a cross. And if the tradition is true, he requested that he be crucified with his head downward because he had denied his Lord. But he would be true to the Lord. Jesus said to him, follow me. And then Peter gets inquisitive about John. I've often wondered if there was a little rivalry here. Uh, Peter said, what is this man going to do? And then Jesus said, and I think this is why this whole 21st chapter is put here, is to answer this question. Jesus said, uh, uh, if I want him to remain alive until I come again, what is that to you? If you read again the Narnia books, you'll find uh, the horse and his boy. And you'll find a horse that gets scratched by Aslan on the back. And when the question is asked of Aslan, why did you scratch him? The answer is, I tell no one any story except his own. And so Peter is told in a nice way to mind his own business to mind his own business, to follow me, said Jesus. And so this answers that question. When the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple John would not die, but Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? I don't know why the Lord lets some people live to be 90 and someone else die of cancer at seven years old or 15 years old, or 20 years old. But I know he's got the whole world in his hands. And I know that he loves us with a love that he's proven at Calvary. And I know that he will forgive us. And I know that he feeds us with his own body and with his own blood. And he gives us work to do. The forgiveness which Peter experienced is that which all of us need. It's the greatest miracle in the Bible because it's the thing we need the most. It's the greatest because it costs the most. Peter could never forget his Lord hanging on that cross and dying for his sins. And it's the greatest miracle because it gets the greatest results. Think of what he did later on. That's why we speak of him with such affection to this day. That's why we love him so much because we can identify with him. And if you are depressed and you feel you have failed, then you may look to the example of Peter and know that in him there is an example of the love of God 
that feeds and forgives us and that gives us a future in his service. Let me close. Weighed down by a burden of sorrow, oppressed by temptation within, the darkness of night o'ertook me, and I wandered alone far from him. Unworthy I felt to approach him, yet I longed for his friendship again. But how could he love one who had grieved him and caused him such anguish and pain? I tried to forget him by turning my eyes to the pleasures around, but I found they were hollow and worthless, my soul no true happiness found. Too lost in my own self to notice, the Master was there all the time, following me close through the darkness. His footsteps were planted by mine. Forgotten were things close behind me. In the light of his love, they grew dim. Instead of the dark came the daybreak. In place of the nothingness came him. New day followed quickly the dawning, dispelling the gloom of the night. My hand clasped in that of the Master, and we journey on toward new life. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the loving example you have given of your remarkable grace in reinstating Peter and of that marvelous appearance that was given to him at the Sea of Galilee. And we thank thee that Jesus is here and that he has called Joe to come back to himself this day. There may be someone else here, Lord, who wanted to come forward but didn't know what to do. Help them to take that step which will mean the most to their life spiritually. And Lord, for others who have held things a long time in abeyance because they did not know which way to turn, to know that if they are willing to give themselves to you, you will forgive them and you will equip them and give them the grace which they need to live for you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all now and forevermore.